Hello and welcome to the Free Movement Podcast. I'm CJ McKinney. For many EU citizens living in the UK, comprehensive sickness insurance has been a cloud hanging over their heads. The UK authorities insisted for well over a decade that Europeans living here were supposed to have private health insurance if they were studying or a stay-at-home parent. It took until after Brexit for the EU court to decide that was rubbish all along and that medical insurance was not, in fact, a legal requirement for EU residents. But in the years it took to get that decision, many EU citizens did shell out for private insurance or were even told that their residence in the UK was unlawful. So if you were affected by CSI in one way or another, what can you do about it now? Joining me to discuss this are Luke Piper, Head of Policy and Advocacy at campaign group The Three Million, and Professor Charlotte O'Brien of the University of York. Welcome both. Thanks for coming on. Charlotte and I are going to do the impossible and make insurance sexy, interesting and exciting. (laughs) (laughs) No one told me that. (laughs) I love it. I, I, I believe in you both. Let's let's do it. Well, what is what is comprehensive sickness insurance? Where, where did it come from? Well, we have to go back in time a little bit to 2006 or to time where where this idea was floated about. But it wasn't really until 2011 when the UK government started to integrate it into their immigration system. And basically, on the continent. That they they do things a little bit differently in most most content, most countries in the, in the EU when it comes to their healthcare systems. Um, most countries in the European Union have a insurance based healthcare system, and the idea was that uh, for those people who weren't working when they moved to another EU member state, an EU citizen living in a in an EU member state, that if they weren't working and they were self-sufficient or a student, that they needed to show that they had some kind of insurance policy in place um, to be able to um, benefit from all of the lovely freedom of movement rights that, that they were entitled to. But this sort of all gets very confusing when you look at the UK, because the UK doesn't have a insurance-based healthcare system. It has the NHS, which is funded through general taxation, and including VAT, paid by everybody. And as such, you've created this very strange situation where uh, under EU law, the Home Office was requiring people to have something that they didn't necessarily need to have. And who did this affect? You mentioned that it was people who weren't working. So still a fairly big cohort of people, even judging by the number of hits on free movement articles about this over the years. There was, there was a lot of people, but it wasn't everyone who moved to the UK. This is one of the, the great challenges, I think, of understanding this conundrum, is that the UK never really required EU citizens to formally register their their residence here. So we know that lots of people came here to work and lots of people uh, came here with their partners and uh, lots of people came to study. But it's not exactly like an official register somewhere where we can officially say, yeah, this is the number of people that were here self-sufficient or were a student who were required to have this comprehensive sickness insurance to, to be living here lawfully. The biggest surprise in all of this is that it 
really was only in certain circumstances where the need to have comprehensive sickness insurance, um, if you were self-sufficient or a student, materialised. It, it was only in very specific circumstances when, when that would happen. Yeah, I mean, you might as well give us some examples of how did it come up that they needed it and how did they, that impact people? It materialised in, its, in, its, uh, in, 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 in one way very strongly after the referendum because a lot of EU citizens made the decision that they wanted to become British. And in the course of doing that, a lot of citizens had to prove that they'd acquired a permanent right to reside to live here. And, you know, for all those who aren't familiar with what that means, basically, you needed to show that you'd lived here in the UK lawfully for a continuous period of five years under EU law. So if you were a student in that five-year period or any period you were self-sufficient, you would need to have shown that you had had this comprehensive sickness insurance in that time. And if you didn't have it, it meant that you wouldn't be able to form your five years and get your permanent residence to prove that you were living in the UK lawfully. And this caught a lot of people out um, because they weren't aware of it. And it definitely, there was a, I remember that in, in, in those sort of few years after the referendum, that there were a an, an, an large number of people who got caught out by this and received some quite you know vicious letters from, from the Home Office and so forth that they should have had this thing that they didn't. And I think that's the most obvious example of where people have seen that they should have had this comprehensive insurance. But it, it's, its tentacles, unfortunately, um, run quite deep into various areas of where people needed to have it. For example, um, people looking to access welfare benefits. Um, so if somebody was needing to show that they had a permanent right to be able to satisfy welfare benefit testing, um, they would get caught out there. And or if you gave gave birth to a, a child in the UK and you thought that you'd acquired your permanent residence, that child would, if you had acquired your permanent residence, that child would have been born British. But if you, again, fell into this CSI trap, that child wouldn't be automatically British. So there's just a, a peppering of, of some of the areas and there's some that are uh, quite a lot more serious, particularly when we're talking about people who are facing deportation from the UK. And when we say deportation, I mean those who have committed a criminal offence and are facing expulsion and exclusion from the UK because of their their criminal conduct. And under EU law, you have various degrees of protection. And that degree of protection is dictated by how much of a connection or a you know, your, your permanency in, in the member state or in, in this case, the UK. And if you didn't, if you're unable to show that you have permanent residence, that would affect quite significantly your ability to, to your ability to have the higher threshold of protection from deportation. So that's just a, a few overviews of where it bites hard. As I understand it, it was always pretty controversial that the UK insisted on CSI here, you know, given the NHS. But but why was it legally dicey? Um, because it, it is in EU law, if you, as Luke had said, if you want to move to another member state, whether it has an NHS or not, then it says it in the directive, you need comprehensive sickness insurance. What was, what was wrong with the UK uh, invoking that? 
Well, it goes back to what Luke was saying, really, that the rules were largely written with other public health systems in mind, typically the ones that generally require contributions. And the NHS isn't like that, um, provided someone's ordinarily resident, it's free at the point of use. And it's comprehensive as far as the coverage goes. And most UK nationals don't supplement it with private insurance. So rather than asking EU nationals to do what most home state nationals do, which the CSI requirement does in other member states, it was asking, or as far as the UK was implementing it, they were asking EU nationals to uh, assume a very significant extra burden compared to home state nationals in a discriminatory fashion. And just um, in informal conversations with judges some years ago, um, I've heard them say, they don't actually know what a what a CSI policy would look like in the UK because lots of private health insurance has so many exclusions anyway. Um, so it, 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 there was always this sense that actually it just it meant uh, that it was impossible to show that you were self sufficient except in very few circumstances in the UK. And many EU nationals looking to establish a right to reside would actually have been looking to establish that in order to be eligible for benefits. So we're not talking about a cohort that's always easily going to be able to afford a very expensive private health insurance policy anyway. And as far as the uh, permanent residence issue is, uh, is concerned, the right to permanent residence Uh, under EU law was based on having five years of exercising a right to reside under the free movement directive. And people who'd been living in the UK for a long period and may have been working for a long period, but had a few gaps in between their jobs, if they had survived on their own resources for that period of time, you know, rather than signing up for Job Seekers Allowance, they may in retrospect, have thought, well, that's not really a gap because I was self-sufficient in that period. And then actually be told, "Uh uh-uh, you weren't, you didn't have comprehensive sickness insurance. Um, And so for quite a lot of people, uh, the permanent residence clock will have just kept on, the five-year clock kept on being stopped and restarted so that they never got to a point of permanent residence. So even in in that circumstances, even a very small uh, gap where you weren't working could sort of spoil a really long period of residence in the UK? Uh, Potentially so. I mean, there would inevitably be arguments in a tribunal or court about how long a gap ought to affect it. But if it was deemed to be a gap in which someone hadn't got worker status, and if they hadn't then signed on for job seekers allowance, they wouldn't be considered to be someone with retained worker status by virtue of being a job seeker. Um, but yeah, quite small gaps could have um, really upended people's work histories. Yeah, well, you've mentioned informal discussions with judges uh, about this, um, but there were formal uh, discussions with judges, as it were, because the, you know the, the argument was put in UK courts over the years that uh, you know the NHS should count as yeah. CSI and and it, it shouldn't be private insurance shouldn't be insisted upon, and mm. uh, the UK courts said said no, the NHS doesn't count. Uh, yes, they did time and time again. Um, the I mean the the case that 
people go back to is the Ahmad case in the Court of Appeal in 2014, um, in which the lead judgment said, um, let's see if I can find the, uh, the relevant quote, the fact that the claimant at the point in time would have been entitled to treatment under the NHS and thus was in all times substantially the same position as she would have been had she had comprehensive sickness insurance is nothing to the point. So they were extremely dismissive of eligibility for NHS um, treatment or affiliation to the NHS. And the, the very the possibility that this was even equivalent to CSI was uh, kicked out uh, at a very early stage. And so um, in all the subsequent uh, tribunal judgments or upper tribunal judgments or higher court judgments, um, the, there is just a constant presumption that this is completely unarguable. Yeah, so so no joy at all in the UK courts or tribunals, but the issue never found its way to the EU courts, um, at least before Brexit, as we'll come on to. And, and like, why why was it never kind of referred from those UK courts or tribunals? Did just it, it was considered a non-starter? Mm, um, well, I mean, this touches on a on a separate but related, also technical EU law point that I've written about separately, uh, which is the reticence of UK courts to make preliminary references in cases where they ought to have done so, where they, in fact, were, would have been obliged to under EU law. That, that's where, just to to tease it, a preliminary reference is where you send a case to the EU courts to get its exactly, interpretation. Yeah. yeah, to get to answer a question about EU law where it's not clear. Um, and there are quite a few instances that I uh, would suggest that this is one of them, where it was not at all clear what constitutes comprehensive sickness insurance, but UK courts deemed themselves fully equipped to answer the question without seeking any reference from the CJEU, um, and therefore um, cutting off the opportunity to have um, a, a judgment on this exact point from the Court of Justice until until now, until after Brexit. Yeah, I mean, that brings us uh, pretty much up to the present day because uh, the Court of Justice in Luxembourg eventually did confront this question just a few months ago um, in the case of um, C24720 VI versus HM Revenue and Customs. And basically, they held very quickly and easily that um, if you have a public health care system like the NHS, uh, that counts as comprehensive sickness insurance. Uh, so all this uh, saga that we've just been discussing was, uh, you know, unnecessary. And like, I, I know you, Charlotte, um, well, both of you guys and, and some other uh, academics and experts had been saying all along that this was the right outcome. I mean, how did you feel about the judgment sort of vindicated? We, we told you so. <laughs> well, not not so much vindicated as tired very tired. <laughs> um, the the fact that it's taken um, so long to reach a point, and it's to reach a point where what has been contentious and argued for so long, to reach a point where it's even been questioned, let alone answered, is is a little bit exhausting. And the fact that it is, it does feel like a bit too little, too late. I mean, we'll touch upon um, in a bit what people can do, but uh, it, you know, this has been going on for 
for years, for well over a decade. Um, and there was plenty of opportunity while the UK was a member of the EU for this question to be put and answered and for all the suffering that we've been discussing not to have happened. Um, I mean, it raises all sorts of interesting questions, like I say, about how questions on the withdrawal agreement are ever going to surface before the Court of Justice. Because if the UK courts were reticent to refer before, I can't see them suddenly um, acquiring a huge amount of enthusiasm for it, unless we're entirely reliant upon this one Social Security Tribunal judge in Northern Ireland, who appears to have been the origin, uh, a first-year tribunal judge, um, who, you know, uh, all credit, uh, made the reference in, in both this case and in the CG case, which touched upon touched upon Fratilla. Oh, very good. Well, we'll have to dig out the name of that uh, unsung hero to uh, give them full credit. And um, before we go on to sort of the fallout of this judgment and what it might mean for people, um, Luke, did you have any kind of reflections on that judgment itself in the, the VI case? Yeah, I- I think Charlotte makes a really important point here that this has been rumbling on for a while. And it's important to say that it's not just the legal arena that this issue has been battered around in. For it's The political arena has, has seen this, uh, again, astonishingly, that uh, comprehensive sickness insurance should be such a sexy enough thing that it gets such airtime in, in, in political circles. But it has done. And, um, you know, questions repeatedly raised in the European Parliament. We know that the Commission was particularly not happy about this and they'd contemplated legal proceedings, uh, never really went anywhere. So it's, it's, it's surprising that it's got to the stage that it has. Let's, you know, look to the future. Uh, the question is now we've had this ruling and, and what does it mean for people today? So let's start with you mentioned. British citizenship and people who were, uh, well, there were people denied citizenship in the past because of no CSI. But even today, the Home Office still says in its official policies that if you didn't have CSI in the past, you're applying for British citizenship now, uh, you can still be refused because in the past your residence was unlawful, no CSI. So, I mean, I don't think they have in practice been turning people down en masse for citizenship on that basis. But, I mean, what, what does this ruling mean for that sort of legal position? Can they still say that, you know, CSI is in principle a ground to turn people away? Or does this ruling sort of scotch that whole thing? We don't know what the government's position actually is yet on comprehensive six and on this judgment. There have been lots of questions put to them about it and they're considering it and considering the implications. In a recent debate in the Lords, they said that they accept the judgment. Um, I think the issue now is a question of interpretation. With respect to citizenship, I mean, there's a significant amount of advocacy work that was done around the Nationality and Borders Bill to try and really unpack the consequences of comprehensive sickness insurance and its interrelationship with with citizenship. And um, there were some concessions that were made, but they were largely grouped in the spirit of, well, we would never refuse somebody anyway. But it is with it was within their gift to do so. And that, you know, that uncertainty you know, when people are seeking advice on the law, the, the lawyers had to give that advice to them. You can't just rely on the words of the minister at a dispatch box. They need, you know, lawyers need law to be able to advise and guide their clients. So what you're saying is as of right now, lawyers would still have to give that 
conservative advice to people applying for citizenship that if they have CSI in the background, yes, we've had this judgment, but you know the government hasn't formally responded to it. And so that uncertainty persists with citizenship. Um, I think it's it's I'm I'm looking at this from a from a very straightforward, you know, do you really want to go through all the hoops of making the argument saying, well, you know, the European Court of Justice has said this, so we must rely on that judgment and that judgment therefore disapplies the policy and the current way of doing things in the government's legislation because we have direct effect and blah, 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 and all of these things. And I think you know, we, we people, we, we need to do away with, with that complexity um, for people to have that certainty and ultimately the government needs to to do that there's no point in in having this 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 vagueness uh, for people to go forward i mean i'm sure by operation of the law you know given how the current how the european court of justice has ruled on this i think there is there are good arguments to say that people don't necessarily need to worry about it but i don't think i don't think we can say that hand on heart until the government has quite forcefully um, expressed its position in legislation or at the very least policy um, beyond saying, oh, we would never do it. Yeah. So that what we haven't had is a sort of general CSI amnesty um, to prevent it kind of, uh, as you say, crawling back under a rock for people after after many years. Um, what about the people who, you know, paid uh, for private health insurance over the years because they thought they needed to uh, compensation for that potentially? Um Charlotte, you wrote for us in the immediate aftermath of the ruling, kind of raising this possibility that people could sue the UK government for what are called Frankovich damages and compensation for a breach of your EU law rights. So would this apply to people if if you paid for private health insurance? Uh, Can you get your money back? Um, potentially, uh, it's it's certainly not a straightforward, you know, uh, reclaim procedure. So, Frankovich damages, like you say, they're awarded by the state to compensate for disadvantages or damage caused by the state's failure to properly implement um, EU rules. And so, we would argue that uh, in adhering to a definition of CSI that was not compatible with the definition that the CJAU has told us ought to have been adopted, um, that the UK has uh, failed to properly implement uh, the directive. Um, but in order to claim damages, there are there are three conditions that must be met. Now, this is where I need to remember my <laughs> what I teach my undergraduates about EU law. Right? So the rule of law infringed must be intended to confer rights on an individual, right? And that that is met here. The directive is intended to confer rights. The breach must be sufficiently serious, which we would argue, uh, I mean, particularly if we're talking about very substantial sums of money in terms of um, insurance, that could be sufficiently serious. Um, but there are other potential disadvantages, of course, that are also very serious. And the damage must be directly causally linked between the failure um, and uh, uh, and the actual damage. Um, and again, we would say that, yeah, uh, but for this uh, dodgy implementation, these people would not have had to fork out thousands of pounds or would not have been denied benefits or would not have faced a reduced threshold for uh, deportation or whatever it is. 
So, yeah, there, there are potentially an enormous cost of private health insurance could be sufficiently serious. But, uh, but yeah, it's worth bearing in mind that there's a whole range of other disadvantages that have been caused that it could be quite difficult to sort of uh, add, a quant- add a quantum to to quantify uh, in terms of monetary value. Yeah. So as you say, there's no like dedicated, um, you know, claim form. You can uh, like, you know, getting your compensation for a cancelled flight. You would have to, you know, go to a lawyer and, you know, ask, hey, can I do a Frankovich thing here? And maybe you haven't lost a huge amount of money. So it, it seems and, and there's a deadline as well. You were saying in the article um, the end of 2022. So it sounds like even if in principle there's an argument people could raise, it wouldn't be straightforward or maybe worth people's while in some cases yeah well the withdrawal so the eu withdrawal act 2018 excludes uh, the possibility of claiming frankovich damages just in general but then has a special little bit of uh, a special exception uh, that this would uh, fall under um, but the exception runs out two years after the end of transition um, which is uh, the end of December 2022, so half a year away, which is not a great deal of time when you're dealing with uh, cases that go back decades with complicated bits of evidence that needed to be assembled and for people to even just realise that they potentially have a claim under here. Okay, well, I mean, in terms of people, you know, not knowing their rights or, you know, needing help to uh, sort of understand what this might mean for them, uh, Luke, you and your colleagues at the 3 million have set up a campaign to that end, um, CSI Justice Campaign, and uh, you talk about getting, quote-unquote, restitution for people who've been negatively affected by CSI over the years. So, you know, tell us about that. Is this about legal action, Frankovich damages, political campaign? Like, what are you doing with this? We think it's such an important issue both for those who've had these kind the, the bigger cohorts of people who've had these impacts, paying lots of money for insurance, but also those people who've been denied family reunion rights, for example. Um, you know, we heard we heard from a couple the other day who um, were forced to leave the UK because of this requirement. I don't know the full ins, ins and outs of it. I'm looking forward to finding out. But you know, but it clearly is the case that that it has had such an impact on people's lives. And I, I think there is such a seriousness to this that um, politically, I think the EU would be wanting to keep an eye on it, um, I would like to think. So a big part of the campaign is telling those stories and communicating the impact and the experience away from the abstract and making it real. And the way that that happens is by people telling their stories and getting in touch with us so that we can catalogue and log them. And yes, connect them with lawyers. And that is what we want to do. We want to connect people with with, with experts in this area to seek advice and to understand their options to pursue a remedy. And... I don't think people should shy away from from that, particularly if they feel that they've lost a lot. And we can look into it. And there are never any guarantees with these things in life. But I do think that it's important that this is a story that doesn't go untold. Just because people have been able to get their settled status or their pre-settled status via a settlement scheme without having the need for comprehensive sickness insurance, this issue will and can come back. And 
it's really important that we fix this now. So it's not just about bringing people to a remedy for injustices in the past. It's about fixing this now so that it doesn't happen again in the future over and over. Right. So at the moment, you've got your website, uh, csi-justice.org.uk. And what you're looking for people to do at the moment is if they've been affected, go to that and tell you guys what happened to them. And then you'll be able to use that for campaigning and that you, you may be able to point them in the right direction for legal action and things like that. Yeah, exactly. And we've spoken to a few firms um, who specialise in damages recovery, especially around complex cases like this, and they would be happy to speak to people. Um, At the moment, we're gathering and consolidating, and then we intend to get in touch with people who've contacted us. Uh, Most of the audience of this podcast, I think, are lawyers. And um, most lawyers who will be listening to this podcast It will be a distant memory of clients who they've supported who may have had to encounter this issue. And I ask if you can think of people who you've supported who fit the criteria of the things that we've been talking about, or indeed that are on our website. We put things on our website that Charlotte and I have worked together on and and, and, and others in our respective teams. And if those things ring true to you, to the clients that you've represented and acted for, then please... um, do encourage them to get in touch with us so that we can support, try and support them towards some sort of remedy. Right, absolutely. And just to kind of re-emphasize the point you're making there, I'm I'm looking at your uh, CSI Justice website and what you're saying to lawyers uh, listening is that if they have clients who had CSI impact on things like criminal deportation, denial of benefits you've got on the website, uh, children not getting British citizenship because the parent didn't have CSI, they got a removal notice saying they weren't exercising treaty rights. All these situations may have happened in the past, um, but they lawyers should try to sort of disinter those cases and, and funnel them to, to you guys. Yes, please. Brilliant. Let's wrap it up. Uh, Charlotte, what's your sort of general... Uh, concluding thoughts on this issue people who are screwed over by CSI any key messages or next steps to take well uh, once they've finished groaning and pounding the wall in frustration like us um, then there's uh, the acronym IDA identify document act identify the wrong find out uh, what it is that has been done wrongly as a result of the CSI Document the damage. So any evidence that they've got, particularly in terms of costs that they have incurred as a result of the incorrect application of the CSI requirement and act, seek help. Um, Particularly, as we've been talking, it's quite a complicated uh, procedure. It's quite a complicated idea to work around if there are Frankovich damages or not. And the clock, you know, if there is a claim, the clock is ticking. But I'd also stress that even if there's no possible claim or if uh, someone doesn't particularly want to go down the route of suing or litigation um, because they can't uh, cope with the FAF or if the damage is of a non-monetary kind that they don't think can be recompensed anyway, to consider getting in touch with us 
at the EU Rights and Brexit Hub and or the 3 million as well, because we want to document the barriers that people have experienced in accessing their rights and to shine a light on the wrong that has been done, even if we can't rectify that wrong. Okay, great. So yeah, even if in individual cases, there may not be, uh, people may not want compensation, it's still worth telling the story so that the kind of general issue can be addressed. And we've got the uh, CSI Justice Campaign backed by the 3 million and the EU Rights and Brexit Hub are gathering those stories. Great. Uh, Thanks both. We will leave it there. Uh, That was Luke Piper from the 3 million and Charlotte O'Brien, University of York and the EU Rights and Brexit Hub. I'm CJ McKinney, and this has been a podcast from Free Movement. We publish updates, commentary, training, and advice on all aspects of immigration law in the UK. EU citizens' rights is one string to our bow, but we cover many more issues besides www.freemovement.org.uk. If you are an immigration professional, you may wish to join as a paid member. I'll be back with the next episode of this podcast, uh, which is the monthly roundup with Colin Yeo on the 8th of July. Until then, thanks for listening.